0: All right, let's go ladies happy fall how was your summer
1: hi melissa um, hi melissa hi susie
2: hi maria my son hi, was maria. great um my
1: son was great um i actually just moved to the dallas area so if anybody listening from the texas region i'm now in your state and um and it's just been really great just um kind of seen all the stuff that has been happened in the art world in the last couple of months Um from the end of freeze to the beginning with the armory. Um, it's just been really uh, fantastic and very excited about the shows that are coming up. Um, this, this, um, this coming, this coming fall, a couple of, sh- a big show center on the Caribbean. I think that we're almost at the end of the hurricane season. So I'm glad about that because, you know, Keeping in contact with family is always um, stressful at this time, but just excited to be back in, in conversation. So
0: Susie, how was your summer?
2: Uh, summer was great. Um, a lot of family stuff going on. Um, I have to ask everyone to excuse me for my voice. I'm recovering from flu in London, um, but it was really great. And like Maria says, just you know, this kind of time, the, the Armoury was really wonderful. I went to New York for Armoury, which was quite exciting. Marie and I managed to snatch dinner together um, at the turn dinner. So that was really nice. Um, and it was really, I, I feel like a lot of relationship building has been happening over the summer, certainly for me. And I'm here in London now doing the Frieze, um Fair and, and 154 Contemporary African Art Fair. So and of course, as with all fairs, some fantastic exhibitions are on. Some great people are in town. It's a real opportunity, you know, for kind of our our the the typical Caribbean kind of migratory, transient sense of connecting. You know, it's been very good that way. So it's been great. I
0: love it. So my summer was filled with the Rona everybody in my house, we all got oh, really? it. So my husband and I had it first, then and it was right when my oldest child was graduating high school. So it was a ridiculous graduation. It was already a Zoom graduation, but my husband was in bed. I managed to come downstairs and still, you know, try to get her some balloons and give her something to, to oh. make that day special. And then the youngest child got it. So I was really in the house all summer dealing with this. So, you know, I got a chance to look at my life and try to get it together. So, it was it was a really rough summer. I came out of it though kind of like roaring into the fall. But I think that I still have some things to organize before I feel like I'm in a good place. So, that was my summer. I was in it was in the house in bed dealing with covid.
2: So, sorry to hear that, Melissa. Yeah,
0: I'm happy that we all got it over with. Um, I know that I'm you know, we can always get this again, but I was happy that for a few things, the positive was that that was the best sleep that I had in like years. I mean, I slept all night, I didn't, I guess, because of the vaccine, I could still breathe, which was excellent. Um, but I I got sleep, I slept for for 10 days. I went to sleep at like 10 o'clock at night. I woke up at seven o'clock in the morning. I felt like I could like get up and run. (laughs) So (laughs) that was the best part about all of this is, you know, getting rest. Other than, and you know, I'm still alive and I was still able to breathe. And, you know, so there was some, there were some positive things.
3: Yeah.
1: Good morning, you look great. (laughs) So like,
0: I don't, you know, I would have never
1: thought um, uh, that you had COVID. Because you know, your skin is glowing. I know people cannot see you, the ones that are listening, but you know, you look fantastic.
0: Thank you. I I put on some lipstick this morning, my Pat McGrath, (laughs) keeping it black-owned, and I love her red. And you know, just I wanna kind of move into some some new things this year. So I'm happy for that. And I'm happy to be back with this all female crew. So we have. (laughs) We're going to tell you who's on here later, but we have this amazing crew and I'm really happy about it, except for James, but shout out to James. So if you hear us talk to James sometimes, and James, you can keep this in, James is responsible for editing this episode. So we haven't seen James all summer and actually I have, no, I haven't seen James all summer. I saw your best friend though, James, I saw her last night, Um, but I'm happy for us to all kind of get together again. So... This is This Week in Caribbean Art and Culture, of course. And I shout out to my daughter, Samaya Wade. She graduated from high school. She goes, I'm not going to say where she's going to college, but she's going off to college soon. And she sent me this article and said, I know that we can't use this for This Week in Black Art, she said, but I really think you should have a conversation about it. And she was absolutely right. I'm, I'm happy that she brought it up. And I was really concerned and honestly surprised um, to read this. Um, but once I read some of the tweets, I feel like I got a slight bit more understanding, but I'm still find this confusing and don't know why this was such an issue. But we're just going to dive right into it. Um, the Art Institute of Chicago has been accused of erasing Felix Gonzalez Torres' queer identity. Um, so we saw this in Art News. This came out October 5th. It was written by Taylor Defoe. I don't think there's a way for me to put a link in, with this in the in the description of the podcast, but we'll figure out some way if, you, if people missed it that they can go back and read it. So the Art Institute of Chicago has been accused of erasing Felix Gonzalez Torres' gay identity in AIDS diagnosis after changing the wall label for a beloved work by the artist in his collection. Last month, so this was in September, a Twitter user pointed out that the museum had swapped out the wall text for Gonzalez Torres' untitled Portrait of Ross in LA from 1991, leaving out previous reference to the artist's late partner, Ross Laycock, who died from AIDS related illness the same year the piece was created. Gonzalez Torres himself died from complications related to AIDS five years later in 1996. The erasure of Ross's memory and Gonzalez Torres' intent in the new description is an unconscionable and banal evil. The post read. It has since been retweeted by near, near been retweeted four thousand times. So we have some other folks in the room. So Maria, Susie, what are your thoughts?
2: <clears throat> I, th- so, I, th- I think it's quite an interesting. Uh, notion: the role social media plays in um, just visibility around these kind of changing narratives. Uh, I do think this particular work, because it's, I mean, the work itself seems to be very poignantly based on the weight, the ideal weight um, of a partner um, that was dying of an illness, you know, where weight loss is uh, an intricate part of that, de- you know, de- degeneration. Um, I I think it's problematic, of course, and internally, I don't know if taking, like, how museums make those decisions, maybe Maria can give some insight into that, but I don't know how you could change the narrative around the work, if it is how the artist spoke about the work, and if it is such a personal um, journey as a work, how that can be suddenly made invisible by a museum, so staff you know or a museum um, curatorial department so I think it's very problematic but I'd be interested to know from Maria like what she thinks internally how that would how that could have happened. So
1: I have not seen the show so I have to like you know kind of you know kind of give that disclosure right that I was seen the show and so I don't know that full narrative of the exhibition. Now what I'll say from my experience is that Um, There are certain topics. Well, I'll say first, before I say that, you know, Felix's work is, you know, is very much this, his partner was very important and his existence with with the illness was also important in some parts of his work. So, so I find it hard to disassociate those, that narrative from the narrative of the work itself. So I'll be curious how they did it and what was the purpose. So which is, that's why I'm, I'm kind of prefacing, I don't know the exhibition, so I don't know how they're framing it. But I would find it hard to disassociate it because it was integral and essential to aspects of his work. That being said, um, um, you know, there's certain topics, especially now with the wars that are happening in the U.S. and all over the Western world that uh, have become very uh, tension. And, and sexuality, gender, all that stuff is one of the topics that I would say is the, it's even more of a boogeyman than race to a certain degree. So I wouldn't, um, and I say that because even from my experience working at my previous museum, I did shows that dealt with race, right, and left. When I did a show with the artist Carlos Mota that dealt with sexuality... That was the one show that I was asked by audiences to give a disclaimer, like the content was, you know, not good for children, you know, um, uh, that, and also that we had issues with, um, um, we had a big symposium and the translator, because we have people from different parts of the world, and they were translating to English. And the translator ma- made problematic translations that the artists and the people in the panel felt like they were being um, oppressive. So th- that's really the only moment that I've had a museum uh, kind of moment that I'm like, oh my God, people are really not willing to talk about certain issues. Um, so so I would be interested to know like what were the curatorial conversations? I'm sure they were not easy and I'm sure the curators working on the show knew about the narrative, I have no no doubt on that because the Art Institute is a great museum and it's a great, with with great curators, but I don't know about the politics of place. And that sometimes goes beyond even our cultural expertise.
0: So that, I have to agree. Um, That's why I found it really shocking that this happened in particular at the Art Institute of Chicago, um, because they do have a great staff and a great team. But you're right, you know, you have to ask a question. So like I was thinking like, well, who is the funder? You know, maybe that's where this comes in. Uh, We know that the, that city is going through a lot of changes. And, you know, some of the people who probably made the most money and really could have really put money into the museum, you know, have left and have moved down here. I wonder how that's going to turn out. So I was kind of following the, the thread in the Artnet story and it takes us to Twitter, right? So there's one that has like a lot of Twitter um, responses. And then there was this one by someone who appears to be um, Greg, Greg ORG, who seems to be a collector. And he tweeted, this is not new, at least since the estate has been represented by Z- David Werner, FGT's own identity, biography and original stated, intents for the work have been downplayed or omitted entirely, as in this press release from their first show in 2017. Um, and it takes you right to Davis Warren page, um, where they seem to say that there is this change. So that's something else to consider. And I think a really good tip. So if now the estate is no longer managed by whoever had it before, and it's now with another gallery, you know, I would suggest for artists, and I don't care where you are in your career, because things change, all of a sudden you can become one of the biggest of the biggest artists there. You want to be sure that all of your intentions are in writing, whether it's in your will, however it works. So whoever gains control of your estates, at least there's there's something in writing saying, this was your intent, this is what you wanted. Now, whether they're gonna manage it that way, Unfortunately, you did. You can't really change that. But somewhere in the archive of your life, we know that this—there was a certain, you know—that there was something that you wanted. There was something that you wanted to to say, and this was how. This is what your intention was. So I think that's really important um, moving forward. I don't care. Matter of fact, not even if you're a visual artist, if you're a writer, if you're a dancer, if you're an actor, wherever you are in your life, be sure that people know exactly what you meant and exactly what your work meant to you and what you want others to to see and understand. So, um, and this is not an allegation against anybody involved. This is all of what what you get to say, this is all alleged (laughs) and all that good legal stuff. Um, Just some of our opinions.
3: We love it. Hey, it's yours truly, DJ Bulletproof of iHeartRadio, and I'm sitting down with Virginia King, Program Administrator for Florida a and University's Medical Marijuana Education and Research Initiative, a.k.a. Marion. This is a Mary's moment. Can you grow your own marijuana in Florida if you have a medical marijuana card? The answer actually is no, you can't.
0: Florida law only allows licensed medical marijuana treatment centers to grow, process, and dispense marijuana. The department will refer any business or person suspected of violating state law to local law enforcement for investigation. It is important to remember that marijuana is still illegal
3: under federal law. Once again, it's yours truly, DJ Bulletproof of iHeartRadio, sitting down with Virginia King of Florida A&M University's Medical Marijuana education and research initiative aka mary educate learn talk with mary at mmeri.famu.edu
2: i want to hear about the venice retreat so
0: let's get into let's get into this this um interview but i do want to talk about that i really hate that i couldn't go to, like i want to tell you, i hate that i couldn't go to that i really hate that i couldn't go to that i was super let me just be honest i was super jealous. I tried not to look at Instagram. I was really pissed. <laughs>
2: but I was like, ah! It was live streamed on YouTube, though.
0: I was like, oh, I wish I could have been there. So, and I tried to, I think I talked to you guys about, like, my travel issues. So I did was able to slip out of the country for a few days. And then the reason why I couldn't go, it ends up <laughs> popping up that that became an issue. So I had to <coughs> give up a chance to go to Casablanca, Dakar, and Paris. So you know that like, yeah, on not even on my own dime. (laughs) Super, like, what is my life? We're gonna get this, we're gonna get through this, okay. Nadia Huggins challenges people's notions of nostalgia for a place that only exists in our imaginations. Photographs in the exhibition invite us to imagine an evolving species adapting to the geological and ecological challenges happening on the planet. They investigate how the concept of hybridity can move beyond a solely human experience by exploring the potential agency of non-human species in the environment as a whole system shaping the, the world. Nadia Huggins exhibition Strange Territory opened with WOPA September 22nd and runs until November 22nd, 2022. Nadia, thank you for joining us.
4: Thanks, Melissa. It's nice to meet you.
0: Nice to meet you as well so tell us all about the exhibition
4: um well um it's been I've I've been doing a residency with for the last year um alongside Betsy um, and they've been basically supporting my practice um giving me a space to work from to just kind of think about what I've been doing these last three to four years um just you know and it given me that room to really sort of like look at all the work that I've been kind of building on and, and trying to weave it together to make something um, that could make sense to an audience. Um, so that was really one of the wonderful things about being at the Betsy just being able to look at all these images and really kind of think about what is I was doing that time. and um, so at the end of it obviously I had to put together this show and um, you know like a lot of my work, was very kind of disjointed in some ways like I had like all these underwater images I had just gone through um a volcanic eruption a year ago so I had been documenting that experience i had been documenting just kind of landscapes and you know like everything kind of seemed very separate um but then I was kind of able to weave it together and sort of make the story of a place that I, I live in um but you know kind of kind of make sense of it all like make it kind of come together in a way um, that could tell that story of the environment especially like being in the caribbean thinking about like all of these kind of like um geological changes that have been happening you know thinking about earthquakes and volcanic eruptions thinking about hurricanes um, and how people sort of live in the space even in the midst of all these catastrophes or kind of environmental changes happening gradually over time So, Nadia,
1: um, I was curious because, you know, one of the first, it's great to see you today um, because, you know, you make such uh, beautiful pictures. Um, And I know, you know, like you were saying, you're working a lot with underwater uh, photographs. So are you saying that you have now shifted towards the geological representations?
4: Um, It's funny because I actually think everything is quite connected. I mean, you know, I had... Of course I had started working underwater and then this volcanic eruption happened and it really kind of opened my eyes to really understand that everything is connected in a in a kind of a submarine way. Obviously the you know, like Caribbean islands have once been underwater and like naturally has kind of like come above the sea, whether it's through earthquakes, you know, thinking of like plate, plate tectonic shifting and just like volcanoes creating land. And so I actually do see it as like part of the same thing, obviously underwater there's like that additional lens of the sea so like things get distorted in a very particular way but I've been kind of using that way of looking um under the water on land as well trying to kind of create a different I guess type of a fluidity to my compositions and and like layering of even just like forests and you know looking at like sand and you know things in a, in a very sort of detailed way now but so, still, still using that influence of the underwater to look at the land now.
1: And I guess I was also curious because uh, with the pictures that were underwater, I always felt like there was a lot of, um, uh, like you're putting your body under a lot of pressure to kind of hold your respiration and mm-hmm. and all that. Is it a similar approach with the new body of work?
4: Um, I mean, it's definitely like physically challenging. Like I don't really consider myself like an extreme hiker or anything, so I think anything that I do that throws me out into the natural environment is kind of a challenge to my own body in any way, whether it's like I'm trying to hike up a mountain or, you know, whether I'm trying to dive to a certain depth. Um, It's always just trying to go a little bit further in whatever I'm doing to find something of interest. Um, And sometimes I'm not necessarily pushing myself that hard. Sometimes I'm actually just going through a very repetitive motion of looking at the same things and trying to see what kind of subtle environmental changes are happening at that moment um to catch that kind of nuance <clears throat> sorry that the nuances of the you know the environment changing because i think a lot of times we think especially with shifts in the environment it's like this catastrophe has to happen this major event has to happen but i think what i've been really trying to get to is that that kind of like gradual change um and looking for those kind of slight moments so I'm, I'm much more interested in the nuances of change than just necessarily like the event, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And with that, I had to, um, uh, one, two questions. One being that it almost sounds like when you're doing your work, it's almost like a trance or a type of performative. Is that like, what will be your reaction to that? That'd be my first question. And my second question would be about climate change. Because I do think that you bring up something about the gradual shift like sometimes when we think about changes in the environment or changes in weather and so on we we it's hard for us to believe it because we think that it's happening like that but you're saying that what you're seeing is the, the, the little steps that kind of yeah the gradual changes that then become a big change so that would be my second comment slap question.
4: Yeah <clears throat> um I think it's definitely more performative once I put my body into it. Um, Like a lot of the other images that I'm doing, I don't know. I mean, for those of you that follow my Instagram, you know, it's I kind of have like a, a kind of a gradual movement of things, whether it's from underwater to sand to land to trees. And like, I'm trying to build an archive of images of the environment at a particular moment in time. And then, you know, sometimes I kind of merge these images with the body. So I kind of, I'm creating a kind of a mythology as well of this kind of creolized body, um, but still using an archive of images that could be useful. Say, so, you know, hundred years from now, people wanted to understand what our environment would have looked like at this time, they would have that reference. Um, but still also kind of using that tradition of like carnival, you know, um, costume making, like thinking about like how to represent a body in a particular way. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not using carnival necessarily as a motif in the work, but like thinking about it more as like a making, like a process um, building um, situation. So yeah, in, in terms of the performance, it is really like once I put my body into it, then it kind of becomes that, like trying to find um, the right way that I want to kind of express a movement. Um, sorry, I'm trying to remember the second part of the question.
1: <laughs> the second part was, yeah, no, it's, it's on, it's, different. So that's why <laughs> I yeah. guess I was asking a lot more about like notions of climate change in your work, if that is something important, mainly because you're pointing out and you mentioned the gradual changes that you're seeing in nature, in this landscape, in this environment. And I think that often when we think about the environment and climate change, um, uh, I, we, I think about, or, or a lot of people think about like a big change and often it's actually small little changes that are accumulating into a big impact. So yeah. I was wondering about.
4: Yeah. I mean, definitely it is something that I think about in my work. Um, again, like what I was saying it is that kind of gradual change. Cause like a lot of times, you know, the, the islands specifically in the Caribbean, I mean, we're pretty vulnerable because of just like our share size, um, And because I work a lot along the coastline, like I'm seeing, you know, the coastline eroding in particular ways. I, um, you know, the sand is kind of moving differently. Like a lot of homes that are built near the coastline are now very vulnerable. So, and that's something I've just observed just from my lived experience of being here as a child, going to the beach every day and now seeing a building like completely destroyed because of the situation now. Um, But it's hard to show that, in a single event, you know, that that's like for me being 10 years old to now me being 38 and seeing that happen. So it's like, I have been trying to find those moments where there is a slight shift. Um, and again, it's like looking at like very simple things. Like sometimes I'll observe just like the watermark on a piece of rock, like kind of gradually going up and down. So like, you know, like a very kind of citizen science approach to it. Like I'll photograph that now and maybe like 10 years from now, I'll photograph it again sort of see where it is but um it's also kind of doing those images in a way that like it it can seem enticing to people like they'd be like oh this is quite beautiful but like really the message is that something is about to happen and i think a lot of my images i try to like relate that idea of like there's a there's a kind of an impending doom not, not to sound fatalistic, but there yes. is something that is about to happen eventually
1: I mean, your images are beautiful. And I think that often when we think about Caribbean art, um, uh, you think some people think about certain stereotypes about what it looks like. Um, uh, and what I really like about your work is that um, it could be anywhere in the world, what you're picturing. And I think that now, you know, with the rise of the metaverse and all this other kind of digital platforms and technologies, we are less and less in the world, like in nature. So I really enjoy that your work. T- and then on top of that, the water and the underwater, right? Um, the sea, the sea, seascape, it's completely, um, uh, it's, it's even more unknown to us because we, you know, we need to push our bodies to be inside of it. So I really appreciate this new world that you take us closer to.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, quick question. Um, Can you take us back to the beginning of this work? So I always remember these beautiful images of the water. When did you start focusing on the environment and the changes in the environment around you?
4: Um, I think definitely when I got my first underwater camera, which would have been in 2014. I mean, I had kind of always been doing it in, in certain ways, but I didn't really actively think about it that way. Um, but yeah, I think once, once I got that underwater camera, it was cause to me, it's kind of like doing street photography, but in the sea, right? Like you go for a walk, like you, you just documenting what your experience is like along that path. You know, I swim the same from the same place, um, along the beach, you know, like I'm looking at the same things, like not a lot of things necessarily change or like happen (laughs) on a day to day basis. Um, But that's kind of the beauty of it. It's like, you know, walking from home to the park, you know, like you see certain things once you keep on, once you make up your mind to look. So I think that's really where it all began for me. Um, And especially, you know, I started documenting a lot of the reefs on that beach um, that I grew up on. And just because I had known what the reef looked like um, before things started to change, like thinking of coral bleaching and all these things. So I wanted to start to capture that. And that's kind of how the transformation images where my is merge with the coral came about, like trying to document those changes over a span of time. And I realized that there was value in doing that. And then that's kind of how I've evolved from that now, I think.
0: And we've talked about this in past episodes, you know, working with government to, to get them to understand the importance of the arts. Has your photography been valuable to... Um, people who are, working with, who are working on climate change in the Caribbean, have they found value in, in your images? Are they using this to make a case for global warming?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I've had various organizations and even just um, like local movements that has been able to impact. I mean, I had one situation that came up quite recently, you know, sort of typical thing with like a hotel investor, wanting to rip out a reef on that beach and you know like just kind of the way that these guys do things they didn't really um they kind of went about it in a very sneaky way um hoping that nobody would recognize but of course like I you know I became aware of it and I happened to just have this like documentation of, of the reef in detail which I don't think they expected anybody to be out there taking pictures of like reef right so I think it kind of took them by surprise and You know, most people have this experience of the beach where they just see things from the sand and they look out at the ocean or like those people who do swim just kind of stay close to shore. So people don't really question things um, unless they really see what's there. So I think having that evidence of like, no, this is a living, thriving thing that's actually like sustaining us. It's like a home for like fish, you know, like it's actually like um, protecting the coastline from like eroding further, you know, so really just, I've been able to kind of use imagery like that to educate people about what's there and like helping them to understand, like, even though it's something that you can't necessarily see, it's serving a purpose to us, you know, like it is influencing us. Like you think like COVID is that, like COVID is this kind of invisible thing that we can't see that's totally influenced our lives in some ways. So, I mean, it's like, things can be invisible to some degree and influence us. And I think part of what I'm trying to do is show people that these things are very tangible, um, things that exist in our, our day-to-day life.
1: I was curious about how this photograph, how do you show this photographs? Like, how do you, like, do you typically just print them at certain sizes? sizes? Are they uh, additions? Like, I was interested to see how they look. Because if you load to your Instagram, you know mm-hmm. people that have not do not follow Nadia go to it because you're gonna be like transforming to a new place <laughs> but mm-hmm. but if you, if you go to it you kind of get immersed into the landscape so I was wondering how you show them in the gallery
4: yeah um well I mean I guess some in some instances it could be very site-specific like I do have certain images that I do in addition numbers um especially well the transformation pieces I've you know, I printed in a very particular way and shown showing them, like I print them on Chromalox, so metal. Um, and there's a, is, there's a particular way that I like to arrange things in a space. But being an artist who is based in St. Vincent, you know, it's always so challenging to print work, thinking of where to store it. Like, you know, once an exhibition is done, where does the work go if it doesn't sell? So it's like, I have a lot of limitations that I work with as somebody based in St. Vincent um, and I'm very mindful of that. So I do, like, I think now, especially after doing this show with Alderi, I really start to think about, like, different ways to, like, print and, like, how, how to be able to move work easily, you know? Like, I don't think that my practice allows me to be a typical photographer. Like, I think I actually have to kind of, like, expand the way I think about um, making work and showing it in a
2: space. And what I loved about the the very few images I can see of the actual install at the Betsy, which is the show we're talking about, um, the light boxes, because I find the challenge with photography is really scale, um, capturing the detail and the luminosity, especially in your work with light and and the ocean and textures and things like that. And the light boxes to me looked amazing. Can you give us a bit of a an idea of how else you've worked with images in the space. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely love to speak about the Betsy, the light boxes. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you know, when I had started doing the underwater work, that's sort of where I wanted, that's how I wanted the images to be printed. Um, but, you know, light boxes can also like border on being super commercial. So there was, there's a very particular way I think that it needs to be done. Um, but the Betsy space for me, for those of you who have been there, it's, it's really amazing because you're kind of walking down into a room. It feels like you're already submerging into something. Um, You know, there's like panels on both the left and the right. So it feels like you're actually in the hull of a ship um, looking out um, through like a portal into the sea. So it it already had that kind of um, feeling that you were going into another space and the ceiling is reflective. Like it actually moves. So it seems like it ripples. Like it, Seriously, like it was it was perfect for the work. So, um, and then you know, like to to you you can really kind of create like darkness around the images. So like you really just focus on the luminosity of every single image. Um, so yeah, I think I mean it's really just about finding the right spaces or creating the right spaces um, for the work. Because I don't think it's just about a image on a wall for me. Like I also want to be able to. Include the room into the work somehow as well, because I think that's a very important experience, especially in immersion with the underwater imagery.
3: Nadia, um, I want to, one of the the topics that was very important for us while organizing the exhibition was the idea of futures. That, by the way, WAFA is creating these. Four month month program about the idea around the idea of Black women photographers and environmental futures, and going back to this notion that you just expressed about street photography, and I haven't heard you um, say that before, Um, and I am curious, you know, with all the implications that street photography has in the sense of how is that how the relationship of the photographer with the subject is established. Uh, and thinking on this idea of more than human relations, on a hybridity that was very important for us while thinking on establishing the show. Can you speak on uh, the kind of knowledge, or if we can learn something from the way in which the environment develops, or you know this kind of others' non-humans' wave of lives, uh, or non-human beings? Uh, what 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 can we learn from them?
4: Yeah, um, I mean, I guess like when you, when you're thinking about multi-species, you're thinking about coral, you're thinking about fish, you're thinking about eels. You know, like to like to develop a relationship to nature, um, it's really just about being in it, right? Like nobody, like I didn't have anybody necessarily holding my hand through that processing. Like this is how you approach a fish, for example. You know, like you just kind of. You read a little bit, like you you look at what other people do, and you try to learn from that. And I guess that's a kind of a an indigenous way of learning. Like you just go through the process of being in a space and um, trying to be as respectful as possible, because that's always at the forefront when you're dealing with the environment in any way whatsoever. Um, approaching any living living being or, or creature, or whatever, um, with some level of respect and reverence. So I think part of it is doing that. Um, but as far as like it goes with people being in that space, it's the same thing. Like you, you always want to make sure that, you know, the person that you're photographing is comfortable with the situation. I mean, you know, everybody's practice is different depending on, on what it is you're trying to accomplish. But I think because I, I kind of approach what I do with a bit of sensitivity. I like to build relationships with people beforehand, let them know what I'm doing. Um, not mislead them you know like let them know that this this is how the work is going to formulate and this is where it's going to go um yeah and just and just trying to you know make somebody comfortable enough to be themselves with you you know and that that does take time um to build that relationship but i mean and they see it's so specific as well because you already they're both of you already trying to just like survive in a sense you know so it's like you have that added layer of like survival in that space where it's just like okay well you're having fun like you need to capture this now so there is a kind of an urgency in creating some of the images also but um most times people people are okay once you once you let them know what you're doing
3: yeah and even if we see some of the i think one recent video that you posted on instagram um in which um you know you are swimming and there are all these fish um they don't even get you know there is not like an interruption of you in the space it's like you are you know in flux with them at the same yeah
4: (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean it's so strange because you you have so many unusually sublime things that happen sometimes I remember one time like I was doing my laps and I had like like three fish just like under me like using me as protection so they would do the laps with me and it's it's so strange like you don't think that you know like it's living beings at the end of the day like they just see you as probably like a whale or something there to protect them from a bigger fish so it's you know you have moments like that but then you also I mean there is a real danger it's not to say that everything is like in union with you like there are things out there that will definitely attack you if it feels like you're encroaching on its territory but Yeah, you kind of learn, you know, what to stay away from and and what to engage with and how close to get.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nadia Alderi, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Very quickly, Alderi, tell us more about the exhibition and where people can go to see it and when it closes.
3: Yeah, well, we have like the very good news that the exhibition has been extended and now people can go and see it uh, until June of 2023. Um, it's been great, so we can see it when we come for Basel. Yes, it will be during Excellent. Basel. And also, we are organizing, um, in partnership with artists in residence in the Everglades, a program in which Nadia um, is the Art uh, Plus Environment Summit. And I will be in conversation with Nadia and with um, another artist as well um, around all these topics. that exhibition can be seen during our Basel. And um, yes, I mean, we have produced a small catalog as well that resumes or uh, summarize uh, all the experience of Nadia during this one year of relationship with WOFA. Early uh, in April, I think we collaborated with the Atlantic World Art Fair in a panel that is online in YouTube uh, around women photographers from the Caribbean region. Uh, also, we have been we have been doing a lot of programs. So I encourage all to follow us in, at Wafa Foundation and Nadia Holdings in Instagram. Uh, those are our um, were or tags in in Instagram to follow us and in our website to learn more about all the programs uh, around the exhibition. And um, and, well, and that we are doing in general for supporting women in photography, and specifically uh, women in photography from the Caribbean, uh, Central America, and Latinx uh, communities.
0: I love it. And Nadia, once strange territory closes, what can we expect from you next? Um, I'm well. I'm supposed to
4: be doing another residency with the Hemispheric Institute um, in New York, so I'm hoping to have a show there at some point. Um, I, yeah, I have a lot of shows coming up next year, so I think, you know, something's not quite public as yet, so <laughs> I think um, if you follow me on Instagram, you can definitely get updates on what's happening. I love yeah.
0: it. Thank you so much. And where can we find
4: you on Instagram? Uh, Nadia Huggins, just, okay. just my name.
0: Okay, gotcha. So yeah. before we close out, you know, this is our first episode for season two. So we're really excited. We have some great topics coming up for you this year. Um, Susie, where can we find you online?
2: Um, you can find me on Instagram, uh, Susie Wong Presents.
0: And Maria?
1: You can also find me on the gram on uh, Contemporary Chica. That's my handle.
0: And of course, you can always go over to Sugarcane Magazine on Instagram to find us at any time. Thank you so much, ladies, for a fantastic first episode. And we will see you soon. Bye, everyone.
2: Bye. 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 Bye.